following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. All right. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. It is session number 33 of our discussion of Lamort Arthur. It is our penultimate discussion. I am still banking on the fact that this is going to be our penultimate discussion of the text. Um, uh, so that's fairly exciting. Um, uh, thanks for joining me here tonight. I think I'm broadcasting in all the right places and none of the wrong ones. That's what I'm hoping I'm seeing here. So we'll see if all's well there. Anyway, um, just quick before I start tonight, a couple of announcements. Um, we, um, Let's see. Uh, oh, right. So, uh, just uh, one quick, uh, uh, one one little mention uh, I would like to make here at the beginning. Um, so, we have um, uh, Signum is registered with Amazon Smile. For those of you who use Amazon Smile, for those of you who don't know what Amazon Smile is, it's like a way to uh, use your Amazon purchases to benefit a, a, a charity. It's a, it's like a charity thing that uh, Amazon has going. So, any nonprofit. Can register and would just like benefit from stuff that you would normally spend on Amazon. So it doesn't cost you anything, but it benefits Signum a little. Um, really easy way to support Signum a bit. Uh, so uh, uh, we're registered for that now. So if you go to Amazon Smile, you can choose to make us your preferred nonprofit uh, to support. Uh, so just wanted to invite you uh, for the opportunity to um, uh, to do that. Um, uh, w one other uh, quick thing is that we have an anytime audit promo that's going on right now, our modern fantasy class. We're sort of celebrating two things. We're celebrating, the, uh, of course, the opening of uh, the final season of Game of Thrones and also uh, Peter Beagle's birthday. Peter Beagle's 80th birthday is later on this month. So uh, to celebrate both of those things, uh, we are uh, uh, doing a, a promotion on our anytime audit of Modern Fantasy 1. Um, uh, our first Modern Fantasy survey that we did, which contains both Game of Thrones and The Last Unicorn. Uh, so you can get that for only a $75 tuition uh, through April 22nd. So you can find that uh, there on our on our homepage, signumuniversity.org. This weekend is Nadermoot. I am leaving home in less than 12 hours uh, for uh, my trip to the Netherlands. I'm really excited, looking forward to seeing people there. Most of the people that I'll be seeing there are asleep now, <laughs> so I'm, I know most of them are not here live, but uh, uh, but I'm really looking forward to the opportunity uh, uh, to meet folks there, and that's going to be great fun. And then, of course, we have uh, 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 Mythmoot coming up at the end of June, uh, so that's going to be awesome. 27th through the 30th of June, down in Leesburg, Virginia. Hope that you can join us for that. All right. Um, oh. Yeah, and next week, next Thursday, we ha I almost forgot, um, the Mythgard Movie Club is meeting again. It's April meeting on the film Captive State uh, on Thursday, April 18th. Okay, cool. So, um, awesome. Zach, thanks for updating your uh, Amazon Smile charity. Yeah, yeah, we used to be in that, and then we weren't in that because uh, the IRS messed up, but the IRS has uh, corrected their error, so uh, we're everything's good, and we're back in. Awesome. Very cool. Um, so let us jump back into the text because we have a lot to talk about. So 
let's remember briefly, where I'm not going to go over this in too much detail again because we did this at the end of last time, but I wanted to remind you of this because it's a really big deal um, for the transition into the Knight of the Cart section, which is where we ended last time. Um, the Knight of the Cart is where... Um, it's kind of interesting. One of the interesting things that we'll see over the course of class tonight is that Maori actually separates two things, right? You have the political catastrophe, right? Um, where the court is actually destroyed and where Arthur's realm is really destroyed. And then you have the moral catastrophe, right? Where Lancelot and Guinevere actually fall into sin. Um, and those things are separated. Um, the Knight of the Cart is when the one time in the text where it is very clear that Lancelot and Guinevere have slept together. They, Lancelot crosses the line in the Knight of the Cart section. It is the only time in the entire text where it is, like, provable, essentially, that that happened. Uh, you, you know, you can choose if you want, as we, and we talked about this a lot earlier, you can choose if you want to believe that, that they've been sleeping together for years. Um, the text doesn't absolutely forbid us from thinking that. Um, though he comes pretty close to, he suggests really strongly in these later passages that that's not the case. Um, perhaps retroactively, perhaps retconning it a little bit, I think. But, um, but in any case... Um, we do get some of that. But again, you can believe that if you want to. But there is one, even if you choose to believe that they are virtuous lovers in the way that he defines that in the month of May passage that we ended with last time, there is still an unequivocal moment when they cross the line. And that's not the time when they get caught, right? That's not the time uh, that leads to the downfall of the court. And Mallory's decision to separate those two things. Mallory, one of the things that I find really fascinating about the end of this story is the, the particular choices that Mallory makes um, and how he chooses to depict these individual characters, but to sort of separate these two things. To, again, to separate the big collapse from the more individual collapse, right? The story of Lancelot and Guinevere versus the story of the Arthurian court as a whole. Um, he very much does not identify those. Um, also, he gives, I think, the clear... I mean, we, we talked about this a bit last time in the context of looking at the May passage. Um, we talked about how many times over the course of this book, we have been looking for direct cues, Right. How is the text prompting us to respond to this? What kind of information does the text give us to contextualize a particular event so that we can feel confident? Are we supposed to approve of this? Are we supposed to be shocked? Or is it just us, right? Is this our modern sensibilities or uh, is the text directing us to be shocked, right? Um, and a lot of times we've had a hard time with that. It's not been super clear uh, how we're supposed to respond. Maori gives some remarkable and some remarkably clear directives in this latter section, and it's another thing that I find really interesting. I am not going to... Keep in mind, when I'm talking about the things that we're going to be looking at throughout the rest of class today, um, at no time am I trying to restrict your freedom as a reader to think what you like or to approve of characters or their actions or disapprove of them 
you have, of course, the perfect freedom to like whomever you want to like, approve of whatever you want to approve of, and all that. Um, what I do insist on, though, is that we be sensitive to the directives of the text. You can disagree with the text if you want to, right? Um, but we do need to make sure that we are perceiving uh, the the directions in which the text is sort of pushing us, right? Um, so that's what I want to, uh, uh, one of the things I want to, and it seems to me that these things really start jumping out, uh, in this latter section, um, whatever he has in mind, right? Whatever this story is trying to get across, Mallory seems to be increasingly, I was about to say anxious. I'm not sure that's quite the right word. Um, but there seems to be an increasing emphasis on, 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 on making that clear. Um, and, uh, this is something that. I have always been very excited about in reading this because it, it was one of those things that I found that uh, it, it seemed to me uh, reading what other people had written about the end of this text that a lot of people were sort of missing some of these cues. So anyway, we'll get to some of that stuff. Enough preamble. I'm not going to go through the whole May passage again, but I kept it up here because I might want to refer back to it. Um, so but just a, a very quick recollection and summary because it was pretty late last time so if you were live with me last time you i you can be forgiven for getting pretty dr- pretty drowsy by the time we got to these passages um he does this I- extremely long digression the longest digression he does in the entire text um where he's talking about the month of may and the nature of love and he is persistently using the seasonal imagery Right as a way of describing good love, virtuous love, natural love. Again, thinking about Elaine's vocabulary here. Right, she is an earthly woman. It is her part to love an earthly man, and there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. Right. So just as in the month of May, right, uh, uh, like trees and herbs burgeoneth and flourisheth in May, in likewise every lusty heart that is any manner of lover springeth, burgeoneth, buddeth, and flourisheth in lusty deeds. That's what happens. Right. It's what you do. Um, so natural love happens, right? And then he talks about how, um, um, the, the bad love, right? Is love, which is unstable, right? Just as winter comes in and arases and defaces green summer, right? So far it by unstable love in man and woman, unstable love, instability is, what he characterizes as sort of the great... So that's what bad love is, right? Bad love is unstable love. Um, feebleness and great disworship, right? Um, if you uh, uh, if you deface and lay apart true love for little or naught, right? That's, that's bad. That's bad. Um, it is good. It is right. It is fitting for every man of worship to flourish his heart in the world... We have priorities there, first unto God, and next unto the joy of them that he promised his faith unto. Be faithful to your lady, first unto God, second faithful to your lady. Right? And it's, again, there was never a worshipful man or woman, but they loved one better than another. Right? Then it gets even more interesting, and he says, he makes this uh, difference, this contrast between modern love and old love. Nowadays... It's all about, it's all about hopping in the sack, right? 
you know, people fall in love and they're all like, oh, like, I can't live without her. I, like, need to sleep with her right off, you know, and, like, it's, you know, they must have all their desires, right? So instability in love is bad. In incontinence, technically, right, the inability to restrain oneself um, uh, is bad in love as well. Um, love that is... Uh, unreasonable like that love that that love might not endure by reason um and i don't think he's saying there it is reasonable to think that love like that won't endure love will not endure like because it is not connected with reason reason is good right and if you are just letting following your fleshly lusts Right. If you are just uh, 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 following your concupiscent lusts, you're not using your reason. Right. Reason isn't driving the bus. And therefore, as soon as your passion is slaked, your love, your so-called love will be gone. That's not real love. This is love nowadays. Right. People have dwindled and they're bad lovers nowadays. That's not stable love. Old love wasn't so back in the old days. Men and women could love together for a really, really long time, and no licorice lustes was betwixt them, right? Which, certainly even before he says anything else, seems like a very open invitation for us to think about Lancelot and Guinevere in that context, right? They were old lovers. Um, stable lovers, right? They loved each other for, you know, several decades. And... No licorice lustes was betwixt them by implication, because then was love truth and faithfulness, and so in likewise was used such love in King Arthur's days, specifically linking it to King Arthur's days. Um, so nowadays it's summer and winter all the time. Remember May, right? The beginning of summer, moving into summer was a good thing. But remember what winter does, right? Remember uh, winter arases and defases. If we go back to that that uh, second paragraph, right? Like as winter rajur doth alway aras and defas green summer, so fareth it by unstable love, right? Unstable love is like winter coming in and laying wreck uh, to the growth, right, and promise of May. Well, those lovers who, you know, come in and they're all hot and heavy and then they're over it, right? Um, that's like summer to winter, summer to winter, right? They're like summer and winter, almost like simultaneously. It can't survive. Like as the tone is cold and the other is hot, so fareth love nowadays. Again, na nowadays, that's it's weak love, uh, passionate love. Uh, that's not a compliment, by the way, to say that it's passionate love. Reasonable love is much better, right? Love with your reason. Um so we end with an, uh, with an injunction. Notice a second-person injunction. Here, this is to all you lovers out there. Right? Here's some advice. And remember, who are all you lovers out there? Answer, everybody. Right? Because it's like what happens. Nobody, there isn't anybody who doesn't love one person more than others. Right? Therefore, all ye that be lovers, call unto your remembrance the month of May, like as did Queen Guinevere. Then he points to Queen Guinevere as our exemplar, right? Try to be like Queen Guinevere out there, you lovers, for whom I mock here a little mention that while she lived, she was a true lover, and therefore she had a good end. The implication of the previous paragraph that 
in King Arthur's dies, there was good love, stable love, reasonable love. Um, uh, the implication that Lancelot and Guinevere's love is what he's getting around to here is made explicit in the last and the last paragraph there. However, um, however, it's Guinevere, and that's a little bit of a surprise. Lancelot is his guy. I mean, Lancelot is, as you know, seems tolerably clear by this point. Lancelot is the main character, right? Lancelot is really the protagonist of this book. Um, but so had he said, like as did Sir Lancelot, for whom I mark here a little mention that while he lived, he was a true lover and therefore he had a good end. I wouldn't bat an eye at that, right? That would be almost exactly what I would expect. Um, there he would just be like, okay, so Lancelot's about to screw up, but um, uh, don't worry, right? Uh, he's going to have a good end, right? Don't give up on him, everybody. Um, that's almost exactly what I would have expected him to say, right? Um, but uh, that's not what he says, right? He holds Guinevere up as the exemplar of good love. And that's surprising in part because, as we've seen in the last few weeks, not to mention back in the uh, first Elaine section, right? In neither of the Elaine sections has Guinevere really covered herself with glory in this story. Or to put the same thing another way, Mallory has not gone very far out of his way so far to depict Guinevere in a attractive light, right? She has not really been held up by this story as an exemplar of love. Indeed, we've seen her missing the the bus again and again, right? We've seen her uh, uh, lagging way behind Lancelot. Um, morally, right? She didn't just... Did, he comes home from the Holy Grail quest and she just doesn't get it, right? Um, uh, he's trying to make sure to try to diminish the slander and she doesn't get it, right? Um, he... Uh, you know, the the whole, like, I'm going to have you wear my sleeve thing. You know, there's several examples that we've seen where it kind of seems like Guinevere has been a negative example. And yet, he points to her as a positive example. That is really interesting, and we'll see where we go with that. Um, all right. Um, Carrie is asking, does he ever comment on Guinevere's love for Arthur? He hasn't <laughs> right now. Uh, two things about that. First, um, there's still time, not much time, but there's still a little bit of time. That's the first thing. Second thing, uh, expectations are super low. Um, it will happen and it won't be too long before it will happen that marriage will become the natural outcome of love. This is something that is so hard to really like bring home to people who haven't read a whole lot of medieval literature. Um, we have been hardwired, hardwired by Victorian novels, hardwired by, I mean, uh, so I mean, cent literally centuries of literature and narrative, right? Uh, and music and everything else have hardwired us to connect love and marriage, right? To believe that love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage, right? That is not a thing in the Middle Ages at 
all. Marriage has nothing to do with love. It's practically irrelevant uh, to marriage. Love is. Um, love is an arrangement. Uh, love is love is. Or sorry, marriage is, is is an arrangement. Marriage is a convenience. Marriage is a matter of politics and finances. Even on the lower, po- I mean, even when you're not talking about royal marriages, you're still talking about finances. Um, it's about you know the propagation of heirs. It's about the consolidation of wealth. It's about, I mean, but it's not about love. Uh, it, it's it's the idea that you should love your spouse. It wasn't even talked about like a bonus, right? Um, I mean, it's it's like it's like it's irrelevant. Uh, I, I can't really sort of stress that enough. Um, we're almost there, chronologically speaking. Um, the person who is going to do most to turn that ship around, or rather, it's not really a turning it around. Rather, it's kind of uh, it's really more of a uh, an alteration. Right, uh, like to divert the courtly love train down a sidetrack and end up uh, connecting it to marriage. Uh, the person who's going to really start that shift uh, is going to be Spencer, Edmund Spencer, um, uh, the guy who's sort of contemporary with Shakespeare, a little bit before Shakespeare, uh, sort of half a generation before Shakespeare. He was the guy that Shakespeare wanted to be when he grew up. Um, Shakespeare wanted to be a poet, right? Wanted to establish his reputation in London as a poet. Uh, and Spencer was already the guy who was like, had the patronage of the queen and was, uh, you know, had published this, the super famous sonnet cycle and, and, uh, was already publishing the fairy queen and stuff at, you know, by the first three books of the fairy queen come out in 1590, uh, before Shakespeare really got started. So again, this is the guy, Spencer's the guy Shakespeare wanted to be when he grew up. Um, and he did this in his, uh, uh, in his, uh, sonnet cycle, right? He has this sonnet cycle where he talks about his love for his beloved, right? Uh, and he, what normally happens, by the way, do you know how sonnet cycles usually end? They usually end with the lady dying, right? That's traditional, right? So, like, first you talk about how much you love your lady and how she doesn't know who you are and then how she says no to you and, like, you'll never be together and then there are all these things and and, and you're longing for her and whatever and then she dies and then... Uh, and if you're anything like the greats, right, if you're anything like uh, Dante or Petrarch, uh, then your lady's death is really where your relationship takes off. Actually, uh, Dante and Beatrice never got along so well until she was already dead. Um, but anyhow, um, so that's, that's the way it normally worked. Spencer writes this big sonnet cycle, uh, the Amoretti, uh, in English and it's going along swimmingly, right? That is frustrated love. And, and she doesn't even know who he is and everything. And then, they get married. They get engaged. Like, she says yes, and they get engaged. And then he writes an epithalamium, which is a a, a wedding poem. Um, and it's weird. It's freaky. And, 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 and after that, we're, you know, we're off, right? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, next thing you know, we're, uh, we're uh, you know, we're at Jane Austen. So, that's a very long answer, Carrie, to say we haven't gotten anything about how Guinevere feels about Arthur, but that's, that doesn't matter. The one thing that matters about Arthur is whether she's true to him, 
right? Remaining faithful to her marriage vows is super important because she's the queen, right? Not only a wife, but the queen. Um, So she has to be true to him, but no one would expect her to love him, right? Not even good lovers would do that. Um, uh, You don't get romantic about your spouse, even under good circumstances. Anyway, okay. As Jennifer says, it's like illegal. Yeah, it it was forbidden by the laws of courtly love uh, where those were codified. Uh, Marriage can't, uh, love can't exist within marriage. Theoretically impossible. Um, uh, Stephen, what did they do with Paul saying that husbands should love their wives like Christ loved the church? Oh, well, easy. I mean, Christ didn't love the, like, did Christ, like, write love sonnets to the church? I guess you could call the Song of Solomon a love sonnet to the church, right? As they did. Um, but, um, I, you know, again, again, it's still like, what is love, right? Um, like, yeah, you, you, you should show charity to your wife. Like, that's the point of that passage, right? Um, caritas is what you have for your wife, like Christ has caritas for the church, right? Uh, but you don't have amor, you don't need amor for your wife. You've got caritas, right? That's what that passage is about. Um, so yeah, it's not about romance. It's about uh, it's about charity. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, David. That uh, sacrificing for your wife and protecting her and saving her like Christ did the church. Yeah, yeah. But that has nothing to do with romance, right? That has to do with 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 caritas, with charity. It's all good. Um. And Carita, you're right. We don't get much about Arthur's love for her, right? In fact, as you point out, we're going to get the opposite. Well, let's keep going. All right. Anyway, time for the night of the cart. Um, so Meliagance is done waiting. You will remember Sir Meliagance, I'm sure, from that memorable incident when, when Sir Lamorak overhears Sir Meliagance complaining of his love for Guinevere, right? And Lamarack hears him and, you know, and they get into a fight, right? Not over the honor of the queen, but over whose lady is more beautiful, right? Meliagance is maintaining that Guinevere is and Lamarack is maintaining that Morgause is, remember, and they end up fighting and Lancelot comes in and he's like, break it up. And then he starts wanting to fight with Lamarack uh, to defend uh, uh, Guinevere's duty. So we see like Meliagance and Lancelot on opposite sides, and then they're kind of on the same side, but we, you know, sort of see them as rivals there. Um, And it kind of gets brushed away, right? Nothing really comes of that there, except this concept is set up, the concept that Meliagons, who you may remember, is the son of King Bagdamagus, uh, is uh, a big fan, right? He is in love with Guinevere and has been for some time. Um, He has laid his plans, and he is done. Right. Um, he takes extreme measures. He waits until Guinevere is out maying with her knights who are maying. That is, they're out, you know, picnicking and strolling. They're having they're, they're all just all out having fun. Right. And they're all in green and they're all unarmed. No armor, no weapons among them. And he ambushes them with like 30 knights and uh, and archers. And he takes them all. Right. Uh, some of them, especially uh, Sir Peleus, uh, uh, does very well. Right. And they end up killing a whole bunch of Sir Meliagance's knights. But they all are taken and held prisoner and they're all wounded. And Guinevere is captured uh, and kept uh, and brought back to Meliagance's castle. 
Um, you will recall also that Meligant lays traps for Lancelot, right? So that uh, he like puts uh, uh, archers in ambush to shoot Lancelot's horse uh, to prevent him from being able to get to the castle. Um, he has all of this planned out in advance, right? He knows just what he's doing. Now, Guinevere manages to uh, achieve something, right? At least sort of in a limited degree um, by getting her wounded knights with her, right? Um, in, in, in saying that she wants to tend her wounded knights, she's able to keep them by her because she's clearly concerned that Sir Meliagans, once he gets her back into his castle, is going to rape her. Right, that is a, a a very realistic concern on Guinevere's part, and even though the ten her ten knights, uh, which includes Sir Kay, remember Sir Kay's there, and and uh, uh, several other people that we know, um, they uh, although you know they're, they're wounded, but but still they're there and could help to defend her person uh, in extremis. Right, should uh, uh, Meligans try something absolutely horrible, and he has shown himself willing to be utterly dishonorable, right? The kind of ambush that he sets, he has, Meliagans has utterly abandoned knightly honor, right? Completely. I mean, he goes, he's like worse than Sir Brusson's Pitté, right? Sir Brusson's Pitté had abandoned the knightly oath, but at least he would fight people one-on-one. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, Keep honor. He didn't fight honorably, right? He would ambush people, um, but he would fight at least as honorably as Gawain, to give him credit, right? He would run away. Uh, you know, he wouldn't uh, uh, stay and do battle to the utterance, but he would. Um, uh, but he would. Uh, 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 but he would still show up, right? What Meliagant does with archers and ambush, even Sir Bruce on Pitté never acted like that. Um, and Corita, you're right. Guinevere does handle herself well during the sequence. She protects the lives of her knights and also contrives at the same time to protect her own virtue. Um, uh, yeah, Stephen asks, is it a slight against archers that they don't really show up in combat, but they're used for ambushes? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, it's very clear that um, Mauer doesn't have much use for archers, Right. Mauer is not a military strategist. Uh, if he were a gung-ho military strategist, then he would be all fond of the British longbow because real medieval military strategists knew perfectly well that the medieval longbow was the weapon of you know late medieval warfare uh, and the reason why uh, you know the English were as successful as they were, especially in their great battles against the French um, back in those days. Agincourt was only the the sort of latest of the uh, major battles that they uh, won. Uh, in in that way, uh, Crecy and Poitiers uh, uh, were also really huge victories uh, along similar lines, though not quite as dramatic as Agincourt. But anyway, um, yeah. So, but he's not he's not interested in military strategy. He is interested in knightly combat, and there is no place for archers in knightly combat. Um, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> 
Steven says that uh, he thinks that uh, just because something's effective means it's OP and needs to be nerfed. Yeah, he clearly thinks that archers need to be nerfed. I totally agree with that. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So, Lancelot shows up, and Lancelot shows up here because his horse has been shot out from under him. Um, he shows up on a wagon. Um, like a hay wagon or something. Um, this is an old memory of the original story, The Knight of the Cart, Le Chevalier de la Charette, by Chrétien de Troyes, which was, the, as the, I've mentioned it several times, uh, the invention of Sir Lancelot. That was the, the very first Sir Lancelot story ever, um, called The Knight of the Cart. The Knight of the Cart, like, the cart plays a very much larger and more formative role, hence the title of the poem. Um, uh, there, it's a little bit of an afterthought here, but we get the same kind of taste uh, a, a distant taste uh, of the same force from the original story here. And more than an hour and a half, Queen Guinevere was awaiting in a by window. She's waiting for Lancelot to show up. Remember, she has secretly managed to send off her ring uh, with a kid, right? There's like a, it's like a page boy there, right? And she has him, has him dash off on a fast horse and they can't catch him. And he goes to fetch Lancelot. So she's waiting. Lancelot's going to come any time now. Right, then one of her laddies aspired an armed knight standing in a chariot, which just means a cart wagon. Ah, see, madam," sighed the laddie, "where rideth in a chariot a goodly armed knight, and we suppose he rideth unto hanging." Where," sighed the queen, "than she aspired by his shield that it was Sir Launcelot, and than was she war where come his horse after the chariot, and ever he trod his guttis and his pouch under his feet." Oh, man. Poor Lancelot's horse. Still faithfully following along behind, even though it's dragging its guts along in the ground. Uh, that is so sad. Alas, indeed, sighed the queen. Now I may prove and see that well is the that well is that creature that hath a trusty friend. Aha, sighed Queen Guinevere. I see well that ye were hard bestowed when ye ride in a chariot. And then she rebuked that lady that likened Sir Launcelot to ride in a chariot to hanging. Forsooth it was foul-mouthed, said the queen, and evil likened, for so for to liken the most noble knight of the world unto such a shameful death. Ah, Jesu, defend him and keep him, said the queen, from all mischievous end. Okay, so... Um, yeah, the cart's supposed to be embarrassing. It's not just embarrassing socially, right? Like, oh my goodness, you know, uh, the, all the great knights are, not, you know, I wouldn't be seen dead in a cart, right? No, it's, it's, it's not like that. There's shame. Like, the only circumstance in which a knight would ride on the back of a cart would be if he's being taken to be hanged, right? Like, you're going to be, like, paraded through the streets and uh, in, in, to be taken to the scaffold. That's the sort of the context of a knight riding in a cart. Um... So, notice that there are sort of three things that we can see happening here. First, we can see the re that reaction from the lady-in-waiting, right? Um, oh, look, that must be a shameful night, right? We can see he, he, he looks like he's being taken to the gallows, right? And Guinevere immediately not only disagrees, right, but rebukes the lady for saying so, right? Um, that is foul-mouthed and evil-likened to, to compare him to somebody who's being taken to be hanged, right? 
Um, no, 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 no. Instead, what it shows is how persevering he is, right? I see well that you were hard bestad when you ride in a chariot. If you've, if you're riding in a cart, you must have had it to, and yet you're here, right? Yet you've, you've managed to get here somehow, some way, um, well is that creature that hath a trusty friend, right? So his his riding in the cart to Guinevere proves his trustworthiness, right? So those are the two things that happen, but there's there's kind of the third, right? You can't get away from the symbolic significance of the fact that Lancelot arrives at the place where he is going to transgress, where he is going to commit his greatest act of deliberate sin in his life, and he arrives there on a cart like somebody who's coming to be hanged like a condemned person, right? He's not condemned yet, but this is a super ominous way to approach this, right? There's a great deal of foreshadowing here in his riding the cart. And also the discrepancy of opinion, right? Carita, you're right that the lady was just saying what she sees, right? She's not, like, making any foul-mouthed accusation against Lancelot personally. She's just saying, hey, look, a knight riding a cart, probably being taken to be hanged, right? I mean, what else would you think when you see that? Um, just because Lancelot, or just because Guinevere happens to recognize her guy, right, uh, which I guess actually is pretty remarkable when you think about it, but nevertheless, um, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't take away anything from the general observation that the lady in waiting is, ma- waiting in, is making. True. But again, the difference of opinion, right? When you look at Lancelot, what do you see? Right? And the answer is both are there to be seen. He is a trusty friend who is persevering under demanding circumstances, right? Willing to risk taking shame on himself if only it will enable him to be there to help his friend, right? Uh, To assist his lady who needs him desperately, right? That's to be seen. You, if you if you have eyes like Guinevere, that's what you'll see when you look at Lancelot, right? If you have perhaps more objective eyes, like the lady who's just looking out the window and seeing what she sees, you might see someone who is taking great shame upon himself and is in fact on a pathway to execution. Um, Lancelot is not yet on the path to execution, but he is on the pathway to high treason, in fact, and mortal sin, right? So whether it's hanging or whether it's hell, he's, his riding on the cart is apt to some extent, right? But again, we can see it, we can see it in, uh, uh, in a couple different ways. Now we come to the moment. Lancelot shows up and Meliagance immediately caves. Remember? Meliagance comes to Guinevere and says, I put myself in your grace. Um, save my life. Don't let Lancelot kill me. Right? And Lancelot comes in and he's like, okay, where is he? Right? I'm going to rip his head off. And Guinevere's like, no, I promised him that you wouldn't kill him. And Lancelot's like, fine, I won't kill him. 
right? Um, Meliagance instantly yields himself. He's not going to fight Lancelot. So that night, she says, come see me. And he comes to her window. Remember, this is happening through a barred window. There are bars. It's, he, he's, he's on a ladder. Lancelot is on a ladder outside a window with iron bars in it. And thon they mad their complaintes to other of many diverse things. And thon Sir Lancelot wished that he meeked have come into her. The fact that at this pivotal moment, at this crucial night, there are, there is, um, what was that wonderful phrase from Dracula? An obstacle of pronounced durability between the two of them. Um, that seems relevant, right? This act, this moment with Guinevere is not something that just happens. One thing does not just lead to another, right? And the next thing you know, they're in bed together. A boundary has to be crossed. A decision has to be made, right? The bars have to get wrenched out of the window by main strength before he can come in through the window to her, right? Um, And that seems to me one of the inescapable... Um, one of the inescapable consequences of this setup here, right? Um, It's a choice, and it leads to this particular moment of choice, right? And Thon they mad their complaint is to other of many diverse things, and Thon Sir Launcelot wished that he meeked have come into her. With you well, sighed the queen, I wold as fain as ye that ye might come in to me. Wold ye so, madam, sighed Sir Launcelot, with your heart, that I were with you? Yea, truly, sighed the queen. Than shall I prove my might, said Sir Launcelot, for your love. And then he set his hondas upon the bars of iron, and pulled at them with such a meat that he brast him clean out of the stone wallace. And therewithal, one of the bars of iron cut the brown of his hondas, Throughucht to the bone, and thon he leap into the chamber to the queen. Make ye no noise, sighed the queen, for my wounded Canictus lie here fast by me. She stipulated that the ten wounded knights be set up in pallets in her bedchamber, so that she could look after them in case they need anything in the night, right? They're wounded, severely wounded in some cases, right? But, of course, they're also her chaperones, just in case Sir Meliagance, whose castle this is, tries anything funny in the night, right? But now, in a sense, that decision, which was clever at the time, kind of backfires on her, right? Uh, Because now the ten knights are in the room that she is inviting Lancelot to come in. Um... Okay, sorry. So, to pass upon this tale, Sir Launcelot went to bed with the queen, and took no force of his hurt hond, but took his pleasance and his liking, until it was the downing of the die. For wit you well, he slept not, but watch it. And when he saw his time, that he meek tarry no longer, he took his leave, and departed at the window, and put it together, as well as he meeked again, and so departed until his own chamber. 
and there he told Sir Lavine how that he was hurt. Fan Sir Lavine dressed his hand and staunched it, and put upon it a glove, that it should not be espied. And so they lay long abed in the morning, till it was nine of the clock. Um, yeah, Zach, I think it's not just that he has the strength to rip the iron bars out of the wall, but he did so very quietly, apparently, with sufficient violence to, like, break either the bar or the stone or something so that it cut his hand to the bone, but it happened super quietly. Just roll with it, Zach. The, it, was, it was super quiet, but not, shh, okay. Like, no one will be woken up by the wrenching of bars out of the walls. Um... Uh, <laughs> so notice the pivotal sentence again a pivotal I mean the sentence in which Mallory describes the act again the one unquestionable time in which Lancelot and Guinevere slept together. So, to pass upon this tal, Sir Lancelot went to bed with the queen, and took no force of his hurt hond, but took his pleasance and his liking, until it was the downing of the die, for wit you well, he slept not, but watch it. What do you notice about that sentence? What do you notice about it? Notice any of those cues I was talking about before, those kind of directives, those sort of hints about kind of how to take this or what the story is prompting us to think about this? Let me ask the same question another way. Is this the... (laughs) I almost said, is this the climax of their story that is perhaps... an ill-chosen word. Um, Is this good? Are we celebrating this? I mean, if this were a normal courtly love story, this would be the moment. I mean, this is the apex of Lancelot and Guinevere's story in Cratian's original by the way, the breaking of the bars and the cutting of the hand all come from there, too. Um, originally, all that's in the original Cratian story as well. Um, yeah, Carita says, it's kind of uneventful. If you're going to cheat on your husband slash king, make it more of a moment, Right. Yes, Carrie, he has spent much more time describing other couplings than he describes this one. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, here are the things that I would highlight in this sentence. So, to pass upon this tala. To pass upon this tala. So, moving right along. So, to make a long story short... Lancelot went to bed with the queen. That in this moment of all moments, he would be like, well, you know, 
in a nutshell, they went to bed together, right? Um, like, you, you, you don't, no, you don't make a long story short. This Make this long story long, right? Again, like, you linger a little bit. Come on, right? I mean, if this is supposed to be the high water, the emotional high water mark, right? The final consum... The, I mean, their love, which they've not consummated, again, if, assuming that's true, right? I mean... Whoa. And we're just like, so to pass upon this tile. That's weird. That's weird. So to pass upon this tile, Sir Launcelot went to bed with the queen and took no force of his hurt hand, but took his pleasance and his liking until it was the downing of the die. Very matter of fact. And Carrie, I agree, less than we have seen in descriptions of other people going to bed. Um, yeah, neutral. It does seem like a, a rather neutral description of it there. Um, uh, then the one thing that is then weird again, and I don't know if it's the other direction or not, but the end of the sentence, for wit you well, he slept not, but watch it. Um, watch it just means he stayed up. Um, like, over, you know, during the night, you're either sleeping or you're watching one or the other. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean, like, being watchful and being on your guard. It can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. To watch just means to be to be up, to be awake. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so he, um, with you well, he slept not, but watch it, right? He, um, so Lancelot didn't get much sleep that night. The tone at the end there sounds a little jocular, right? With you well, he slept not, but watch it, right? He didn't get much sleep, if you know what I mean, right? Seems to be kind of the tone of the end of that sentence. Okay. But we're going to make a long story short. We end up kind of teasing Lancelot a little bit at the end. Notice, and yes, Patricia, it's not they, but it's just him. Uh, was it good for her? We have no idea, <laughs> right? Uh, the emphasis of this is entirely on him. He took his pleasance and his liking. Now, I'm not trying to argue that Mallory is implying that she didn't enjoy it, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we're being told things about Lancelot, Right? Lancelot is the focal point of this sentence and indeed in this whole paragraph. Um, Tomas asks, would the shortening of these events be due to respect, you know, would be done out of respect uh, for Arthur? No, no, I don't think so. Um, Again, if you were committed to telling a, um, a love story, right? You know, adultery is normal, right? Adultery is good in a love in a traditional love story. Um, a king, you know, whatever. I mean, there are political ramifications, but you know, love-wise, it's all good. Um, so that should be fine. Yeah, no, I don't think so. So, okay, let's talk about the bloody sheets. Um. No, 
Let's wait to talk about the bloody sheets. We'll talk about the bloody sheets on, I think, the next slide. Um, notice in this paragraph, he just sexually consummated his relationship with Queen Guinevere, probably for the first time. And we get... We get more... In this paragraph about the conversation between him and Sir Levine the next morning, then we get about him and Queen Guinevere. Um, this is passed over extremely quickly, right? Extremely quickly. Now, he does not, and Carrie, you were pointing this out before, and I think that's it's true and very important. He doesn't say anything negative about it, right? Um, he could. Right? I mean, he could have been like, so, to pass upon this towel, Sir Lancelot went to bed with the queen. And thus did Sir Lancelot commit the, uh, the you know, a, a horrible sin. We could, he could have recalled for us the vow that Lancelot made in the quest for the Holy Grail, right? And so did Lancelot uh, put the finishing touches on the breaking of his vows that he made in the quest for the Holy Grail. He could say something like that, you know, something negative like that. He doesn't say anything negative like that. Um... Yeah, he 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 doesn't do that. And yes, good, Matthew, you're right. There's also no, uh, and thus was the downfall of Camelot begun. Yes, no, we don't get that kind of sentence either, right? Again, I, th- I think the word that we were using before is most apt. It's, it's very neutral, right? A neutral description of the thing that happened. And he says, he introduces it by telling us he's not going to linger on it, right? To pass upon this towel. You need to know. Fact is, they slept together. Now, let's move on. Uh, because what happens the next day is what he wants to talk about, right? Not the actual event. He doesn't want to dwell on the actual event. In other words, I think that we can see two things, right? He resists. Either one of those things is a totally legitimate move, right? If he's a lo- if he's writing a good love story, oh, you want to dilate on this. You want to spend some time. You want to give him some dialogue, right? You want to have them. Li- I mean, that very traditional, right? To 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 describe the ecstasy and then to have them have a long, heartfelt, uh, uh, sappy conversation afterwards, right? But as the dawn is coming and all that. I mean, hey, you know, um, that's. Um, that would be no, that would be one totally normal tack for him to go, or he could go all moralist, right? Another perfectly legitimate tack. He could be like, and then they slept together, which was a horrible thing to do, and he broke his vow, and he should be ashamed of himself, and he's going to bring destruction on himself and everybody else because of that. Also, totally legitimate t- take, right? Um, for Mallory to have on this scene, he does neither of those two things. He presents the fact, right? And then moves on to the next part of the story. And that is, to me, a very interesting... I think it is a reflection of the fact that this story is walking a very delicate tightrope at this point. Um, remember this. Remember the ways in which we, ha- we are seeing here the story neither condemning nor praising Lancelot or the Queen for what's going on here. And I think, I think that that's an important element as we're going to be moving forward. 
Um, okay, now let's talk about the bloody sheets. I'm not just trying to skip it. Um, Than Sir Maliogan. So, the next morning, everybody's sleeping in, right? Because, you know, <laughs> it's been a busy night. Uh, and Sir Meliagant comes in to the Queen's chamber. Not only does he come into the Queen's chamber, he opens her bed curtains. She's in a, you know, a curtained bed like you do. Everybody knows why we do that in the Middle Ages, right? What, you, know, you know the point of curtained beds? Why do you sleep in a curtained bed? What's the point of them? Anybody know? Anybody know the point of curtained beds? Yes, Karina, because it's freezing. Warmth is why. Because, like, when your bed is in this little, like, fabric cave, uh, you can kind of warm it up with your body heat, right? Uh, and, and trying to warm up the whole room is, is uh, yeah. No, hey, warmth, exactly. Okay, so she's in a, she's in a you know, a four-poster bed with curtains like you do. Sir Meliagant, on the one hand, this is his house, right? So, you know, he can go where he wants to go, in theory. He not only comes into her bedroom, he comes into her bed while she's still in it. Um, that is a major, that is a twofold transgression. Um, and you should be definitely, like, if you are wondering to yourself, why is he doing this? What's his plan, right? What would he have done had he not found what he found? Like, what? What's he doing? Um, it's a fair question, right? Had he not found her covered in blood, her and the sheets covered all with bloody handprints all over the place, right? Um, if he had not found that, what would he have done? What was his plan? Why was he there? What was he doing? Um, That's um, a kind of an ominous question. <laughs> Zach still thinking somebody must have heard the bars being broken. Nope, nope, nobody. So uh, you'll notice that the um, the forensic approach to this particular <laughs> crime scene is not very thorough, <laughs> right? I mean, nobody even notices that the bars have been broken out of the window and put back. Right. That never even comes up here. Um, so, yeah, like, yeah, you really have to prevent yourself from going all CSI on this bedchamber. But, Karita, I think what you say is definitely true. This dude does not have the high moral ground. No. Um, what he is doing is invading her privacy. Um, uh Uh, it is entirely possible that he was planning to rape her right then. I mean, that's a reason to, when there's a woman in your castle under your power, especially one that you have the hots for and kidnapped the day before, um, and you come uninvited and unannounced and alone into her bed, right? That's a bad look, right? Uh, there are not very many good um, reasons for doing that, right? So it just, let's, let us briefly recall that context here. Uh, 
when uh, which again he doesn't make a, a, a Maori doesn't himself make a huge deal out of it, but Lancelot will, of course, as you may remember. Anyway, Thonser Meliagant went to the queen's chamber and found her lad her uh, found her laddies there ready clothed. Ah, Jesu mercy! sighed Sir Meliagant. What isle is you, madam, that ye sleep this long? And therewithal he opened the curtain for to behold her. For to behold her? Um, okay. And than was he war where she lie, that all the bed-sheet, pillow, and over-sheet was all bebled of the blood of Sir Launcelot and of his hurt hond. Juan Sir Meliagant aspired that blood, then he deemed in her that she was false to the king, and that some of the wounded connectes had lying by her all that nicked. Aha, madam, sighed Sir Meliagant, now have I found you a false traitoress unto my lord Arthur, for know I will prove it well, prove well, it was not for nocht that ye lied these wounded connectes within the bondes of your chamber. Therefore I call you of treason afore my lord King Arthur, and now have I proved you, madam, with a shameful deed, and that they been all false, or some of them, I will mock it good, for a wounded connect this nicht has lain by you. Let's think of the symbolism here. This is a deeply symbolic moment, right? And it's, again, adapted from an even more deeply symbolic moment uh, in the original, in Cratian's Night of the Cart, uh, which is, is a super fun moment. Anyway, he opens the curtain, and there's Guinevere, covered in blood. And the whole bed is covered in blood. Um, is it supposed to recall... The bloody sheets on a wedding night, yes, but with grim and even horrible irony, right? This is not the blood of virginity, right? Clearly not the blood of virginity. I mean, apart from the fact she's been married for decades, right? She's not a virgin. That's not a newsflash. But does it recall that? Yes, but it recalls it horribly. This is not the blood of virginity. This is not the blood of innocence, therefore, in a sense with a C, not the blood of innocence, T.S. The blood of innocence, uh, which is the blood of virginity, it's the blood of guilt. Just as the blood of virginity shows that you are innocent, shows that you are pure, so the blood that is covering, Sir, uh, that is covering Guinevere here shows that she is guilty, shows that she is stained. She is stained with blood. And of course... Blood is going to be the outcome of this. Not just blood, of course, in the combat uh, with Lancelot and Meliagons, but the entire, all of the blood that is going to be shed in the battles with Lancelot and ultimately in the battles with Mordred, the, 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 this is the beginning of all of them, right? The blood that is covering uh, uh, Guinevere here. Um, so, anyway, that's... Um, does it recall that? Yes, again, but it recalls it in horrible irony, right? This is the blood of her guilt, and that is, of course, exactly what Meliagant calls out, right? Um, you are covered in somebody's blood, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out whose blood that is. 
obviously the blood that she is covered with must be the blood of Sir Kay, right? Or somebody. There are ten wounded knights who are bleeding freely in the bedroom, right? And notice how he turns her own defense against her, right? Her own attempt to defend herself, her own virtue, right? Her reputation by having those knights in the room with her and not being locked in a private chamber in Meliagon's castle. Um, now, because of her adultery with Guinevere, um, of her adultery with Lancelot, rather, his with Guinevere, uh, now she looks horribly guilty because there are all these bleeding guys right there. So, Jennifer, yeah, the outcome is he's wrong. He's not wrong, but he's wrong, right? Um, Meliagant almost has it right. She is guilty. She is plainly guilty, and the guilt, the guilt is shown all over her. By the way, so you'll remember, of course, as is true, as I said earlier, of almost everything that happens in this latter section, Tristan and Isolde did it first, right? Remember when we got Sir Tristram in the bloody bed, right? He also wounded himself and then went to bed with somebody's wife, and then the husband came home, right, and found the, the you know, her covered in blood in the bloody bed, Um very different, right? Very little was done with that there. Uh, uh, and it wasn't even as old, right? As you'll recall. That was Sir Seguardes' wife. Uh, hey, Sir Seguardes is going to come up in today's reading. We're going to come back to him. Same guy. Uh, but anyway, um, having already sort of worked with this idea, now he's ready to do something real with it, right? And make it, uh, uh, use it as a really powerful image in this pivotal moment here. Um, but yes, David, you're absolutely right to point out exactly in that way. Mallory has brought about the situation so that the accusation that Meliagant makes is technically wrong, right? She is in the right. Lancelot, when he defends her, is going to be in the right in this quarrel. Not because the queen is in fact innocent, but because his accusation is false. She did not sleep with one of the wounded knights that was lying in the room. Right? She slept with a different wounded knight. Um, and yet, again, he's technically wrong. Um, this is Lancelot challenging him. Right? They're going to decide, they're going to settle this by combat. Beware what ye do, sighed Sir Launcelot, for an ye say so and will prove it, it will be talking at your hondas. Right? Lancelot comes in and he's like, hey, you're accusing the queen, right? You, you really want to go there, Meliagant? And Meliagant, um, so, you know, beware what you do, for an ye say so and will prove it, it will be talking at your hands. If, you, if you're going to make this claim, I'll take it up, Right? Um, are you are you sure you really want to level this accusation, Meliagant? Mister, I see you coming from a distance on foot in a cart, and I'm going to go running to Guinevere and beg for my life, right? Remember that, right? You're sure you want to you want to take this <coughs> take this to court? Look at his answer, my lord, Sir Launcelot," <coughs> said Sir Meliagant. "I read you be war what ye do." For though ye are never so good a knight, as I wot well ye are renowned the best knight of the world, yet 
Should ye be advised to do battle in a wrong quarrel, for God will have a stroke in every battle. One of my favorite lines to take out of context. God will have a stroke. Um, Meliagant the coward is uh, seems to be plucking up his courage because he he because of the evidence, right? Her guilt is obvious. I mean, you don't have to, you know, be a CSI to 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 figure this out, right? He knows he's right, so he's confident because in every battle God will have a stroke. As for that, sighed Sir Launcelot, God is to be drad. But as to that, I say nigh plainly, that this nicht there lie none of these ten knictes wounded with my lady, Queen Guinevere, and that will I prove with mine hondas, that ye say untruly in that. Now, what say ye? sighed Sir Launcelot. Thus I sigh, sighed Sir Meliagance, here is my glove, that she is a traitoress unto my lord King Arthur, and that this nicht, one of the wounded knictes, lie with her. Oh, the tragedy, Meliagant, if you'd stopped halfway, you'd have been much better off, right? Had he stopped at, here is my glove that she is a traitoress unto my lord, King Arthur, full stop, right? He's okay. But he adds the the fateful clause, and that this nicked one of the wounded knictes lie with her. You'll notice how Lancelot maneuvers the actual oath that they're swearing on very carefully, right? What is it that he's saying plainly? This nicht there lie none of these ten knicked is wounded with my lady Queen Guinevere. Didn't happen. He's very confident in that, right? Because he lay with her himself all night long. Now, Jennifer, you are absolutely right. We've already seen that trial by combat isn't infallible. But fighting in a wrong quarrel is bad. Uh, and there's. Remember, I said at the beginning, this was condemned by the church, right? It is not something that everybody has automatic faith in. Um, trial by combat is dubious. It's not a joke. It's not doctrine. It's dubious. Some people believe in it. Some people don't believe in it. Um, and within this text, we have seen some positive evidence and some negative evidence. Um it seems that mo- most of the knights talk as if they believe in it. Um, Meligon was is just here talking. The, his God will have a stroke speech, right, is an expression of faith in the concept of trial by combat. Lancelot himself would seem to have some faith in trial by combat. At, at the very least, Jennifer, he's hedging his bets, right? Um, he is making sure that the letter of the law... Right, the exact terms of the oath that he swears that he will prove uh, by, uh, with his own hands on the person of Sir Meligant is a true vow. Right, Meligant is actually in the wrong. Um, yeah, Tarlonio says that uh, Lancelot keeps getting sneakier and more underhanded as this goes along. Yeah, I think Tarlonio, if we're feeling uncomfortable with that, I think you're you're not wrong, right? Um, Lancelot is, well, he's manipulating this on purpose, right? 
he is arranging so that he can get he's getting himself off him the queen and himself off on a technicality on purpose um and that's a bad sign that's a bad sign definitely um Stephen says it's odd that Milligan has faith in God's judgment or claims to, given how sketchy his own motives were. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um, I have to admit, Stephen, I don't fully get Meligance's end game here. Um, what his plan exactly is, especially if I kind of assume that having Guinevere himself is still his goal. He's probably not abandoned that as a long-term goal. Um, how does he... I mean, he's going to arrange to get her burned at the stake. Is Has he just shifted, right? Is his love soon hot, soon cold? Um, is his love unstable love? That wouldn't surprise me, given what a jerk he is. Uh, so maybe his love has gone cold now, right? Maybe he's really upset at how this has all come down. And so since he can't have Guinevere, and he's convinced that he can't have Guinevere, instead he wants to have her killed. Right, he will he will take his vengeance on Guinevere for her rejection of him uh, by having her burned at the stake. Maybe that's his goal, right? Maybe that's where he is right now. Um, yeah. Now James Stevens points out that he has uh, said in the past he would defend the queen in right or wrong, so he's fulfilling his promise, right? Yes, yes. Um, though I still agree with Tarloniel that if we're feeling uncomfortable about how underhanded he is getting, I think we have reason to be. Um, yeah. Um, a dollar struck. I certainly agree that the fact that Queen Guinevere has not given Arthur an heir does seem to be a very big elephant in the Arthurian room. Um, and I don't recall any version, any medieval version of the King Arthur story in which that even comes up. It's amazing. I don't understand why it never comes up. Um, but it never comes up. Uh, even indirectly, it never comes up. So, uh, that, at least that I can think of. Um, so, um, so yeah, I can't, I can't think that, that, uh, Although, I mean, I agree with you. It's a it's a major and strange point. Um, yeah, it does feel like it, it, it would be a talking point, right, uh, Karina? It does, but it never is. Um, and so I, I don't think um, I don't think that it is here. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, OK, um, let's keep going. Look what we get from Lancelot next. So. If it's unclear exactly what Meligant's next plan is, we know what his next stratagem is, right? Uh, to uh, have Sir Lancelot fall down a pit trap, and because uh, you know he forgot to check for traps, and he's going to keep him until the trial's over, right? So uh, Meligant does not have necessarily like totally stalwart faith in God, right? He talks that way. Um, but uh, it seems to be an excuse because really he's hedging his bets, right? He's, uh, 
Uh, he's he's just he's gonna get rid of Lancelot anyway. He has no intention of fighting him, uh, so he's holding him prisoner. Um, uh, and I agree with you, Stephen. He, he he isn't a rogue, so what would he even do with the trap, even if he did see it, right? And he's wearing heavy armor anyway, so I mean, please, uh, even if he has a dex bonus, it's all blown to heck. So, um, agreed. Anyway, thus leave we Sir Launcelot lying within that cave in great pine. And every die there come a laddie, and brought his meat and his drink, and wooed him every die to have lain by her, and ever Sir Launcelot sighed her nigh. <laughs> Hashtag Sir Launcelot problems. Thun said she, Sir, ye are not wise, for ye may never out of this prison but if ye have my help. And also your laddie, Queen Guinevere, shall be brent in your defout unless ye be there at the die of Batile. God defend, sighed Sir Launcelot, that she shall be brent in my defoct. And if it be so, said Sir Launcelot, that I may not be there, it shall be well understoned, both at the king and the queen, and with all men of worship, that I am dead, sick, other in prison. For all men that know me will say for me that I am in some evil cast, and I be not that day there. And thus will I understand that there is some good knicked, other of my blood, other some other that loveth me, that will tack my quarrel in hond. And therefore, sighed Sir Launcelot, wit you well, ye shall not fear me. And if there were no more women in all this land but ye, yet shall I not have ado with you. Then are ye shamed, said the laddie, and destroy it forever. As for the for world is sham, now Jesu defend me. And as for my distress, it is welcome, whatsoever it be that God sendeth me. So she come to him again, the psalm die that the battile should be, and sighed, Sir Launcelot, bethink you, for ye are too hard-hearted, and therefore, and ye wold but honest kiss me, I shall deliver you and your armor and the best horse that was within Sir Meliagant's stable. As for to kiss you, sighed Sir Launcelot, I may do that, and lease no worship. And wit you well, and I understood there were any disworship for to kiss you, I would not do it. All right. Um. <laughs> Jennifer says, we already know that, kipping and, that kissing and clipping uh, were perfectly okay, thanks to Tristram. Um, Lancelot could even marry the gal. Yeah, exactly. Pulling his out of the blanchemans on her, right? Uh, sounds like, uh, Jennifer, I think this, this, uh, lady's a little more savvy than, uh, poor is old too. Um, uh, but anyway, um, How would we describe Lancelot's love here? Well, it sure seems awfully stable, right? Um, not soon hot, soon cold, right? Hasty heat soon cooleth. Uh, no, no, that's not his love, right? Remember, stability, reason, those were, that was wisdom. Right, that was good love. That was virtuous love, as he described it before. Lancelot is showing virtuous love here. Um, immediately after he sleeps with the queen, he is 
put into this sort of, and you know, we, we can see what Meligan is doing and why he's doing it, right? But Maori has put him, the story puts him into this sort of contrived courtly love scenario, right? Um, I mean, it's almost like a, a you know, a, 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 a theoretical moral quandary that he's placed in, right? So, Lancelot, are you going to sleep with this lady and be unfaithful to your to your lady, like to, to Guinevere, but by doing so save her life? Or are you going to risk letting her be burned at the stake because you were being faithful to her, right? You see how this is kind of a deliberately contrived, delicious moral quandary, right, to place him in. There's like, oh, there's no good option, right? There's, you know, he's... Uh, but what it does is it shows what's the what choice you're going to make what's more important to you right um and he chooses not to sleep with her right i would done were there no more women in all this launders but ye yet shall not i have ado with you can i make myself more plain right no um and he reasons it out pretty thoroughly. What Lancelot does, ironically, she, the lady herself, tries to put it in those, like, if you're faithful to her, you'll be the cause of her death. If you sleep with me, you'll be unfaithful to her, but you'll save her life, right? So which one is really more unfaithful to her, right? Which is the greater betrayal of your lady, to let her die or to, you know, cheat on her, right? Um, clearly, the answer is obvious, right? Um, and Marilyn, I agree. It is a throwback to the earlier world, in a sense, right? To that earlier word, world that's passing away. Notice Lancelot's response to this. He's not having it. Not only is he resolute in his choice to say, like, look, I know that sleeping with you would be wrong, and I'm just not going to do it. But he, he blows up. He blows it up. He blows up the carefully contrived dilemma that she has placed in front of him, right? And he's like, you know what? No, that's not the choice. I'm not choosing between sleeping with you and letting her die or saving her life, right? I'm not going to sleep with you. And even if I don't sleep with you and therefore stay in this prison, I'm not going to be shamed and she's not going to die, right? Because, like, Sir Bors will fight for her, Sir Levine will fight for her, Sir Gareth will fight for her. Somebody will fight in my stead, Right? And they'll probably kick Meligan's butt, and she'll be fine, right? So Guinevere's not going to die, right? Nor am I going to be shamed, right? So come on, lady, please. His response is a reasonable response. That's important, right? And it shows he's a virtuous lover, right? His love is the good kind. It's both stable, and it's also reasonable. Um... And he shows the ability to do the right thing, to choose the sort of emotionally more difficult option of not doing the... I mean, almost any time in a moral quandary like this, uh, you know, when you're asked to do do a thing that now that you know is shady in order to prevent a worse thing from happening, right? That's always a trap. Um, and he, he sees that, right? He responds to that exactly well. This. Lancelot does the right thing here. As for my distress, it is welcome, whatsoever it be that God sendeth me. 
it's fine. Everything's going to be fine. I'm just going to... And then I love how he rubs it in at the end. Right? Kiss you? Okay. I'll, uh... I'll give the kiss. Right? But only because I don't think it will be any disworship. Right? If I thought it were, I wouldn't do that either. Right? Don't make any... Don't think I'm compromising here. Right? I'm not compromising. Because you have changed, you're not asking me the thing which I know is wrong, but only a thing which is actually fine. Right? Um, He's not leading her on. By saying what he does about the kiss, he is deliberately not leading her on. You know, like wearing somebody's sleeve or something like that. He's making it perfectly clear this kiss doesn't mean anything. Because kisses can mean something, right? Can be a promise. This is not a promise, right? Just a much lesser gift, which I can give, and it's fine. Um, It's fascinating, isn't it? That immediately after his greatest failure, immediately after his, the, the disastrous event, we see Lancelot doing right. We see him passing this kind of complicated test. Um, he is not one of those newfangled lovers. Um, again, the new lovers can't love for seven days, but they must have all their licorice lusts. Lancelot is not somebody who's just subject to his licorice lusts. Um, that's uh, not his situation, just in case you were thinking it, because they did just sleep together. Right, but don't let that lead you astray in your evaluation of these people. Right, they're still old-time lovers. They're still virtuous lovers, even though they have crossed a line—a line that had iron bars across it. Right, uh, so that it was especially hard to cross. Now, that's an interesting parallel, uh, Dolly. Uh, the kiss that he gives her, kind of like Sir Gawain not giving up the green girdle, uh, the green belt, uh, in Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. I agree, but there's a big difference there. The big difference is that he, and as the Green Knight says, he lack it a little because he loved his life, right? Um, that is, he keeps the green girdle out of weakness because she tells him. She, he's saying no. He's refusing the green girdle right up until she says, oh, and by the way, it kind of makes you decapitation proof, right? Thought I'd mention that, right? And he's like, really? Decapitation proof, do you say? Um, uh, you know, maybe I will hang on to this, right? So it's a, it's a different choice that he's making. He doesn't accept it as a love token. Um, he successfully resists all that. Whereas, again, this kiss doesn't have that extra meaning. Anyway. Um, okay. He fights Meliagant. He kills. He shows up in the nick of time. He kills Meliagant. Um, uh, there's that really interesting moment where he uh, he's trying to get Meliagant to fight to the utterance, and he won't. So he has to like take off his armor and literally tie one hand behind his back, and then Meliagant will fight him uh, to the utterance, and then he kills him in one shot. Um, he manages to execute uh, Meliagant, and he does so honorably, though he is seeking the death of Meliagant. Um, he has to go way out of his way to make it legal, right, to make it honorable, and not just an act of murder. 
But of course, again, notice the striking contrast between Lancelot and Gawain have both been knights who have been bearing grudges against another knight for his actions, right? Um, and they approach it very differently, right? You've got on the one hand Sir Gawain ganging up on Sir Lamorak, taking him when he's already weary and attacking him from behind uh, and having him stabbed in the back. Lancelot also goes after Sir Meliagance and means to kill him, right? Means to take vengeance on him for what he's done. And yet he does so half unarmed and with his hand tied behind his back, right? Um, a fight that is more than fair, that is lopsidedly unfair in favor of his opponent, as opposed to taking very unfair advantage, uh, as he does um, with, uh, uh, as, as Gawain does with Lamorak. <clears throat> I, I want to try to go quickly through this segment. This is the, the healing of Sir Uri segment. And I, I want to, as I say, I want to kind of go, go go quickly through this. It's a, a an interesting little interlude, but it brings up it climaxes at a really pivotal moment for Lancelot. Here, I think, is the question that confronts us in the healing of Sir Uri section. What's Lancelot's status right now? He's guilty. He's crossed the line. He's compromised himself. He has loved the Queen Paramours now. He has violated his principles. He's broken his oath. He's not horrible. He's not a newfangled lover. We see his virtue, but um, he's not Sir Gawain. He's not Sir Meliagant. He's not... Um, so what is he now? Is he... He can't still be the top knight in the world, can he? Because he's guilty, and he's hiding that guilt. He's bearing that guilt and trying to conceal it behind legal fiction in the case of the trial of Sir Meliagon, right? Or the trial of Guinevere, technically. Um, uh, Then we get Sir Uri. So here's a Sir Uri story. So it happened in Spine, there was an earl, and his son's name was called Sir Alpheus. And at a great tournament in Spine, this Sir Uri, Knecht of Hungary, and Sir Alpheus of Spine, encountered together for very envy, and so either undertook other to the utterance. And by fortune, this Sir Uri slew Sir Alpheus, the earl's son of Spine. But... This knight that was slain had given Sir Uri, or ever he were slain, seven great woundes, three on the head and three on his body, and one upon his lift hond. And this Sir Alpheus had a murder, which was a great sorceress. And she, for the despite of her son's death, rocked by her, her subtle crafties, that Sir Uri should never be whole. But ever his woundes should on time fester and another time bleed, so that he should never be whole until the best knight of the world had searched his woundes. And thus she mad her avount, where through it was knowen that this Sir Ure should never be whole. So we have Sir Ure who is innocent. Right? I mean, you know, he did kill the guy, but, like, 
in fair fight, right? And they had agreed to fight to the utterance, right? So there's no dishonor to him whatsoever uh, in the killing of Sir Alpheus of Spain, right? But here's poor Sir Uri of Hungary, who gets cursed by the sorceress mom, right? You got to watch out for that. Um, and Corita, um, aren't the women in this book significantly more magical than the men? Right, that that there is a disproportional amount of nigromancy being studied by the ladies. I absolutely agree. Um, yep, very clearly. But anyway, um, okay. So he gets cursed. His wounds are going to fester until the best knight of the world has searched his wounds. The curse will be broken by this condition. So, the proof of the best knight in the world will not be proven by arms, right? Um, Think about the... There have been a bunch of times when, especially in the Holy Grail quest, when we were in the general vicinity of Sir Galahad, where there was something that could only be done by the best knight in the world. Right, Like, this sword can only be drawn out of the sword by the best knight in the world. This sword can only be taken out of its sheath by the best knight in the world. This sword can only be gripped by the best knight in the world. This shield can only be taken up by the best knight in the world. Right, All, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, now, we have this man can only be healed. So he has been magically cursed and must therefore be miraculously healed. And... Being the best knight in the world is the condition that will enable the dude who searches his wounds to heal his wounds. Um, the healing, therefore, is going to be miraculous. The key parameter here, therefore, again, it's not about skill in battle. What does it mean to be the best knight in the world? Right? How do you qualify to be the best knight in the world? Because you'll remember that's already changed once, Right? What does it mean to be the best knight in the world meant something before the quest for the Holy Grail and then it meant something else during the quest for the Holy Grail? Is this the same kind of situation? Right? Um, What do they mean, best knight in the world? Because, again, it's not just might in arms, obviously. Um, The answer to whom seems to be deciding this um, is uh, God. Because a miracle is going to have to happen. By the way, so he comes to Arthur's court, and all the knights in Arthur's court search his wounds, right? Um, Do try to forget what you know of microbiology. Um, Anyway, uh, all the knights search his wounds, and they are all listed. All 110 knights are listed by name, right? So clearly one of the functions of this section of the story is is merely this final catalog itself. We love lists in the Middle Ages, big fans of lists, and listing all of the knights at this particular moment is really significant, right? Because this is almost the end. After this, uh, the number of knights is going to be steadily decreasing. This is the last moment. We're, gonna, we're, 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 we're taking a long look around Camelot, right, before 
we are uh, going to head out into the wilderness in the next section. Um, so we're talking about knights who are there. And it, as I recall, it's when we get to the son of Alexander the Orphelin, and we mentioned that Alexander the Orphan was killed by King Mark. That we're then told. Also, that traitor king slew that slew the noble Knicht Sir Tristram as he sat harping afore his lady La Belle Isoude with a trenchant glaive, for whose death was the most wiling of any Knicht that ever was in King Arthur's dies, for there was never none so bewiled as was Sir Tristram and Sir Lamorak, for they were with treason slain, Sir Tristram by King Mark and Sir Lamorak by Sir Gawain and his brethren. And thus Sir Bellinger, that's the son of Alexander the Orphan, uh, revenged the death of his father, Sir Alessander, and Sir Tristram, for he slew King Mark. Finally, good grief. And La Bellisode died, swooning upon the cross of Sir Tristram, whereof was great pity. And all that were with King Mark, which were of ascent, of the death of Sir Tristram were slain as Sir Andred and many other. Okay, so this is the only thing that we get about the ending of the Sir Tristram story after all the story that we got, right? All we learn is the basic fact that King Mark kills him with a trenchant glaive, right? Which means just a really sharp spear. Uh, so he kill he stabs him in the back with a spear while he's unarmed and harping for La Belle Isoude. Right, uh, so this is a very cowardly death for Sir Tristram. But Zach, I agree, it's some closure is better than no closure, right? Um, but um, but anyway, uh, and La Bellizo dies of grief after his death, and that's it. Jennifer is wondering if this is a good end for his old. Great question, because she was faithful. Well, hang on. Mallory said that because Guinevere was a good lover, therefore she had a good end. Right? But that doesn't say that... We'll see. We will see what we think about Isolde's end. Um, Okay, let me not say that, because I'm not sure that we can necessarily come to a firm conclusion about it, but what I will say is Guinevere shall not have the same end. So this is not the end that he was referring to when he was talking about Guinevere's coming to a good end. Anyway, um, so just couldn't, you know, had to note the business about the death of Sir Tristram. Now, um, Lancelot is late to the party, right? And he comes in and Arthur says, search his wounds. And Lancelot's like, no, 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 I shouldn't. Right. I, I, I'm not going to put myself forward. I'm not going to pretend to be the greatest knight in the world. Now, that by itself is kind of interesting, right? Lancelot Lancelot knew that he was at the top of the leaderboard. He wasn't cherry about that before, right? Galahad was certainly not, right? I mean, any time Galahad sees an inscription that the thing is for the best knight in the world, he's like, yeah, that's totally me, right? He doesn't deny it. Um, Lancelot does not want to search the wounds of Sir Uri. Why not? Why doesn't Sir Lancelot want to search the wounds of Sir Uri? 
Then said King Arthur unto Sir Launcelot, Sir, ye must do as we have done, and told him what they had done, and showed him, showed him them all that had searched him. Look at those hundred and nine other guys. Jesus, defend me, sighed Sir Launcelot, while so many noble kings and knictes have filed, that I should presume upon me to enchieve that all ye, my lordes, make not enchieve. Ye shall not choose, sighed King Arthur, for I command you to do as we all have done. My roast, my most renowned lord, said Sir Launcelot, I know well I dare not nor mind not disobey you, but and I meeked or durst with you well I wold not tack upon me to touch that wounded knicht in that intent that I should pass all other knictes. Jesus defend me from that sham. Seer ye tack it wrong, said King Arthur, for ye shall not do it for no presumption, but to bear us fellowship, insomuch as ye be a fellow of the round table. And wit you well, said King Arthur, and ye prevail not and heal him, I dare say there is no knecht in this lawn that may heal him, and therefore I pray you, do as we have done. He says he doesn't want to presume a bunch of times. This is what he says. I don't want to presume. That kind of humility has never been a very marked element of Lancel Hutt's character to this point, right? That's fairly new. Um, Devorah says, I'd be confused if I were Arthur. Yeah, he sounds a little confused, doesn't he? Right? Like, sir, you take it wrong. He's like, what are you, no, what are you talking about? Right? It's not about putting yourself forward. Um, I mean, indeed, it's kind of weird that Lancelot is saying it this way. Literally everyone else in the court has tried. Right? So for him not to try, I mean, it would be one thing if the guy came in, right? And they're like, only the best night. And Lancelot was like, stay back, everybody. This is mine, right? I got this. Don't trouble yourself. This is obviously this guy might as well have my name carving in gold on him, right? Um, yeah, okay, that would be presumption. That would not, that would be not in keeping with proper, you know, humility. Um, but that's not the situation. And Arthur does sound confused, right? Um, Arthur's like, no, it just... Do it because you're, you know, uh, part of the Fellowship of the Round Table. And this is a group project, right? Uh, this is a bonding moment, Lancelot. Why are you holding yourself separate from all of us? Why do you think he is? David asks, does he fear that he's lost that sort of power and rank because of his sin? Um... Zach is wondering how much of his reluctance comes from learning he was no longer the best when Galahad was around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, he's certainly not the best knight that ever lived, right? Because Galahad was clearly better than he in several dimensions, right? Um, but Galahad's gone now, so uh, he's back up to number one on the leaderboard. Um, I do agree with you, David. I see in this, again... To me, it comes down to what is at stake here and what is the mechanism. Um, he has to just submit. This is him submitting himself to a kind of judgment, right? Um, publicly, too. I think that what we are seeing here 
Lancelot has not lost confidence in his ability, the strength of his hands, right? Um, he is confident that he can kick people's butts when he needs to kick people's butts. What he seems not confident in is, will God affirm him? Will a miracle be done that will proclaim him, that will bring him worship? Is God on his side? He seems to doubt that. And I do think that that's guilt. He doesn't think he is going to be acknowledged by God as the best knight in the world anymore. Um, ah, my fire lord, sighed Sir Launcelot. Jesu wold that I meek to help you. For I sham sore with myself that I should be thus required, for never was I able in worthiness to do so high a thing. Lancelot is lowering expectations here. Lancelot is saying, I, I, I don't, he doesn't believe. He's saying, I don't believe that I can do this. I don't think that I'm going to, Jesu wold that I meek to help you. Again, see, it's he the terms that he understands here. This is Jesus's decision, right? This is God's decision. This is a miracle. Um, and he doesn't deserve it. And he is, says he's not going to pretend he deserves it. Um, and I do think that he dreads being shamed. Everybody assumes he's the best, right? As Arthur just said, if you don't do it, nobody in this court's going to do it. Well, everyone's already tried anyway, so he knows that empirically. But, um, but still, they believe in him. But he doesn't seem to believe in himself in the same way. Found Sir Launcelot kneeled down by the wounded Knecht, sighing, My lord Arthur, I must do your commandment, which is so sore against my heart. And then he held up his hondas and looked unto the east, sighing secretly unto himself, now, blessed Father and Son and Holy Ghost, I beseech thee of thy mercy that my simple worship and honesty be salved, and thou, blessed Trinity, thou mightst yef me power to heal the sick knicht by the great virtue and grace of thee, but, good Lord, never of myself. He prays a good and humble prayer. This is a good prayer that he prays. He does pray that his simple worship be saved, um, which sounds a little odd. Uh, he's looking to the east. He's looking towards the, the rising sun. Uh, you, you always look to the east. Um, priests, are, uh, medieval churches are always oriented east and west. Um, the front doors of a church the facade, the big tall facade of a church where its doors are, um, that's called the Westworks because that faces west. East. So when the priest is standing at the altar facing the altar, he's always facing east. Um, uh, towards Jerusalem where Jesus will come again, uh, towards Jerusalem where Jesus came the first time, uh, um, towards the rising sun, which is the symbol of the resurrected Christ. Yeah. So facing east, that's a uh, that's a standard thing, but that's like a priestly thing. Um, it's uh, uh, and even his holding his hands up in the air like that is also um, very much like a kind of priestly ritual. Um, his invocation of the Trinity. 
Um, he prays for this miracle by the great virtue and grace of thee, but good Lord, never of myself. And thon Sir Launcelot pried Sir Ure to let him see his head, and than devoutly knailing, he ransacked the three wounds, that they bled a little, and forthwithal the wounds fire healed, and seemed as they had been whole a seven year. And in likewise he searched his body of other three wounds, and they healed in likewise, and than the last of all he searched his hond, and anon hit fire healed. Than King Arthur and all the kinges and canictes canaled down and gave thankinges and loving unto God and unto his blessed mother. And ever Sir Launcelot wept as he had been a child that had been beaten. That is a very remarkable simile that Mallory leaves us with there. Everyone is praising God for the miracle that has been performed, and Lancelot is weeping, weeping like a child that had been beaten. Why is Lancelot weeping like a child that had been beaten? This is one of my favorite lines from this whole section. Yeah, he didn't deserve that. He knows he didn't deserve that. He said he didn't deserve it, and he meant it. Right? Nobody else might have believed him. But he knew. Marilyn, you're right. He knows he didn't, he didn't deserve it. But he's not weeping out of happiness. He's weeping like a child that had been beaten. He feels chastised, right? Harshly chastised. Like a child that has been punished. Under what circumstances do you beat children? If you're in the Middle Ages. What's the point of beating children? <laughs> no, not Tuesdays. Um, to punish them, yes. But why? Why punish them? To teach them, to correct them. Yes, yes. Beatings are pedagogical. This is why teachers beat their pupils. Um, I mean, like, teaching and beatings are will be closely associated way, you know, into the modern era, right? Um, <laughs> up through my, f the favorite name, my favorite names ever given to it, to teachers in literature, uh, that wonderful, um, pedagogical pair, uh, uh, the, 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 the tutors of Tom Jones, Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, whose names are Thwackham and Square. <laughs> oh, Parson Thwackham and Mr. Square. Uh, yeah, yeah, Parson Thwackham. Uh, <laughs> 
Sorry, I can never even think about Tom Jones without laughing. Um, yeah, no, it's it's to it's to teach them, to discipline them, to instruct them. Um, I'm not asking you to get behind that if you're not. I'm just saying that is the accepted understanding. A child who has been... Be- so if we are imagining he wept as a child had been beaten, if we're imagining like a lonely, abused child, that's not the, that's not the template here. Um, this is a child that has been corrected. Why do you correct a child? Or let me ask the same question another way. Carrie, you already answered this question correctly. Um, which, what children do you beat? Yes, the children that you love. Exactly. Um, you only correct children if you care about them. If you don't care, you won't bother. You won't bestir yourself to correct them. Weeping as a child that has been beaten, Lancelot is acknowledging correction, right? He, he, he feels rebuked by God. But he's also weeping because he knows that he is loved by God. He has just been a recipient of grace. Grace means, by definition, being given something you don't deserve. Lancelot has been shown grace by God. Is God approving of his adultery and high treason against the king? No. God is not putting his stamp of approval on all of Lancelot's action. Lancelot knows that. He wouldn't feel like a child that had been beat. You don't beat a child if he doesn't need correcting, right? Um, He's acknowledging his need for correction, right, at the same time. Um, so there's no way, certainly in Lancelot's mind, that he accepts this as uh, A-OK, right? Um, but he... Uh, but it's him who's accepted, right? It's him who is loved by God. And that love is tough love, right? Um but that's real love. Uh, again, in within this within these parameters, um, this is a really fascinating and important spiritual moment for Lancelot. All right, it's getting late, but I started a little bit late. Let's keep going. Let's at least begin the reading for today. We're getting behind, but it's all right. Um, we're now going to enter the section. And make sure to do justice to the title, because of course I love the title uh, that it's given here. Right? It's we're finally up to the Mort Arthur part. Right? Remember the title that he gives it: "The Most Piteous Tale of the Mort Arthur Sons Guerdon." Right? That's that's what we're reading now. And he starts this with a recollection of the May passage: "In my when every heart flourisheth and burgeoneth, for as the season is lusty to behold and comfortable, so man and woman rejoiceth and gladdeth of summer coming with his fresh fleurs, for winter with his rough windes and blastes causeth lusty men and women to cower and to sit by fires. So this season hit befell in the month of May a great anger and unhap 
that stinted not till the flower of chivalry of all the world was destroyed and slain. Okay. Um, first of all, he approaches the May thing differently here. In May, when... So let's... Um, notice how complex the syntax is here. This is an unusually complex sentence. Um, let's take aside what our editor has put in parentheses, which seems to me perfectly correct. In May, when every heart flourisheth and burgeoneth, so this season it befell, in the month of May, a great anger and unhap that stinted not to the flower of chivalry of all the way. So he's just saying, uh, it happened in May, <laughs> right? Like the the bad stuff that led to the fall of the uh, of Arthur's court happened in the month of May. So it's literally just the context. But he can't bring up the May. He can't bring up May without recalling all those metaphors about May and May as the symbol of virtuous love, right? Um, so we're, we're... May, you know, that season in which men and women rejoice and are glad of summer's coming, right? Why are they rejoicing at summer's coming? Because winter with his rough winds and blasts causeth lusty men and women to cower and to sit by fires, right? Winter is bad. Summer is good. Winter causes isolation, right? Uh, now, of course, if you're imagining lusty men and women cowering and sitting by the same fire, you're thinking about it wrong, right? Because again, remember, we're not talking about married couples, right, who are staying home and cozying up by the fire in the wintertime. That's not the metaphor here. We're talking about lovers who live in different houses because they may or may not be having an adulterous affair, uh, and so the winter keeps them in at their separate fires. So just as uh, spring leads people to flourish and burgeon and, and everything and come together, so winter separates people and blasts and destroys things, right? So we're reminded of that metaphor. And the entire thing is put in this ironic context, right? When does all this happen? When does the final destruction, you know, kind of like rough wind is and blast is, right? That separates people, that destroys green summer. The destruction of Arthur's court, which is like all those things, happens in May, right? So we get this paradoxical May, which of course fits because May is associated with love. And it was love that led to this. May, but wait, but wasn't May associated with good love? Not bad love. Right? May was good love. Lancelot and Guinevere's love is good love. It still led to the destruction of the Arthurian court. It still... Still in that month of May befell a great anger and unhap that stinted not till the flower of chivalry of all the world was destroyed and slain. Is this ironic? Yes. Um, but there's also an element, I think, I don't want to go be too strong in saying this, but there's an element of him, of Mallory, the story anyway, having, having the narrator having it both ways, right? On the one hand, remember, month of May, virtuous love, right? The context of the destruction of the court is the month of May. And yet, 
we're not going to turn aside from the fact that it caused it. It was the month of May that brought about the downfall of the Arthurian court. Right? It may be good love. It may be virtuous love. But it was still in May that Arthur's court fell. And all was long upon twelve unhappy Kniktas, which were named Sir Agravine and Sir Mordred, that were brethren unto Sir Gawain. For this Sir Agravine and Sir Mordred had ever a prevy hat unto the queen, Dame Guinevere, and to Sir Launcelot, and daily and neatly they ever watched upon Sir Launcelot. For this Sir Agravine and Sir Mordred had ever a privy hat unto the queen. They have a privy hate unto the queen. What should we be remembering there? Does that remind you of anything? I read that sentence and I'm like, huh, isn't that funny? We got two problems in this court, right? One problem is that Agravaine and Mordred have a privy hate unto the queen. They hate the queen in their hearts. What's the other problem in the court? The other problem in the court, it's getting late, and I'm asking you to think, which is unfair of me. Exactly, Devora. Lancelot's privy love. Yes, Matthew is thinking the same thing. Lancelot has a privy love for Guinevere, which is and remember the business about privy love and outward seeming, right? If only in his privy heart Lancelot had been set towards God as he is in his seeming outward, right? But his privy heart is on the queen. He has a privy love for the queen. These two factors, the privy love and the privy hate, are the two things which lead to this ruinous, destructive month of May, right? And daily and nightly, they're watching. Um, keeping an eye out on Sir Lancelot. Are we remembering his watching on that particular night and not sleeping? Maybe. More irony. So they departed. And Thon King Arthur... Uh, sorry. Oh, we are, this is... Um, okay, so they've come in and they've said to Gawain, right? All the brothers are together. All five of the Orkney boys are together. And Agravain is like, that's it. I'm going straight to Arthur, right? I'm going to out the queen and Lancelot. I'm going to accuse them to Arthur's face. And, and Gawain says, don't do it, man. Right? Gawain says, no. Gawain says, I'll have no part of it. And he leaves. Right? So they're arguing. And then Gawain leaves with Gareth and Gaheris. And only Agravain and Mordred are left. So they departed. And then King Arthur asked them what noise they mod. My lord, said Sir Agravine, I shall tell you, for I may keep it no longer. Here is I and my brother Sir Mordred brack unto my brother Sir Gawain, Sir Gaheris, and to Sir Gareth, for this is all, to make it short, how that we knew all that Sir Launcelot holdeth your queen, and hath done long, and we be your sister sonnes, and may suffer it no longer. And all we wot that ye shall be above Sir Launcelot, and ye are the king that mad him knicked, and therefore, therefore, we will prave it that he is a traitor to your person. Give it be so, said the king, wit you well, he is none other. But I would be loth to begin such a thing, but I meeked have previous of it. 
for Sir Launcelot is an hardy knicked, and all ye know that he is the best knicked among us all. But if he be talking in the deed, he will feet with him that bringeth up the noise, and I know no knick that is able to match him. Therefore, and it be soth as ye sigh, I will that he were talken with the deed. For, as the French book saith, the king was full loath that such a noise should be upon Sir Launcelot and his queen, for the king had a deeming of it, but he would not hear thereof, for Sir Launcelot had done so much for him and for the queen so many times that wit you well the king loved him passingly well. Okay. I would be loath to begin such a thing, but I might have proof of it, says Arthur. Right? Let's not just go accusing Sir Lancelot. Because if you do, he'll fight with you and he'll probably beat you. Michelle, yes. Arthur, but doesn't say he knows, he has a deeming of it. He has a notion. Right? Arthur is not, has not been without his suspicions that things between Lancelot and Guinevere might have been approaching that line which they shouldn't cross. But he has deliberately looked the other way. He has... And why did he do that? He would not hear thereof, for Sir Launcelot had done for him so much, and for the Queen so many times. We've seen this, right? Remember, this was just dramatized with Sir Mador de la Porte, Right? Again with Sir Meliagance, though more dubiously the second time. Right? Um, he's grateful to Lancelot. Not only for Lancelot's service to him, but also for Lancelot's service to the Queen. He's been the Queen's champion, as we saw in the case of Mador de la Porte, and he's grateful for that. Um... The king loved him passingly well. But he's willing. He's willing to... He greenlights Sir Agravain and Sir Mordred to get proof, right? Um, to catch him in the act. Look here again at the cues. Look at the directives that Mallory gives us. Uh, this is another one of those passages that really jumps out at me. Lancelot is setting off on the fateful night. Right, He is going to Queen Guinevere's room. They are about to get caught. This is it. This is the night where they're going to be outed. Right, The whole thing is coming out in public, and it can't ever be put back in the box again. Sir Bors tells him, don't go. It would be foolish to go. Don't risk it. Matthew says they already missed their chance to catch him red-handed. True enough. True enough. Um, Sir Bors says don't go. Lancelot chooses to go anyway. So how do we understand that? How do we contextualize that? Well, Again, tell me, as I'm reading, type in any words or phrases that jump out at you 
that seem interesting and suggestive. So Sir Launcelot departed, and took his sword under his arm, and so he walked in his mantle, that noble knicked, and put himself in great jeopardy. And so he passed on till he came to the queen's chamber, and so lickly he was had into the chamber. For, as the French book saith, the queen and Sir Launcelot were togetters. And whether they were abed, other at other manner of disportes, may list not thereof mach no mention. For love that time was not as love is nowadays. But thus as they were together, there come Sir Agravine and Sir Mordred with twelve knictes with them of the rune table, and they sighed with great crying and scarring voice, Thou traitor, Sir Launcelot, now are thou takin! And thus they cried with a loud voice that all the court meeked hear it, and these fourteen knictes all were armed at all pointes as they should ficht in a battaile. Good. Okay, Devora and um, Carrie, both are really interested in put himself in great jeopardy. Yes. You could say, and then Lancelot acted like a bonehead, right, and went against the better advice of his cousin to Guinevere's chamber, though he had been warned, right, uh, like a fool, and that, but that's not how it's depicted at all, right? He put himself in great jeopardy. Um, this is bold. This is noble. Right? He is putting himself at risk. So his going to the queen's chamber despite the danger is not the act of an idiot. It's the act of a brave person, right? A selfless person putting himself in jeopardy. Um, yeah, that is an interesting, a very interesting turn of phrase. But how do we know we're supposed to interpret it that way? How do we know putting himself in great jeopardy? I mean, that could be foolish, right? To put yourself in great jeopardy when you don't need to, Right. Got it, Marilyn, exactly. Notice how Mallory leads into that with that noble knicked. That phrase is so totally egregious, right? Does he have to stop and give an aside like that? So Sir Launcelot departed and took his sword under his arm, and so he walked in his mantle, that noble knicked, and put himself in great jeopardy. That noble knicked is, a, I mean, that is... um egregiously superfluous, right? Um, he is being, this, his going to the queen's chamber on the night when his adultery is going to be proven, right? At least possibly, or in a sense, um, he's being, made, the narrator makes it sound like he's striding into heroic combat, Right? Um, man, yeah, I know, right? It's gonna, it's, uh, brings tears to the eyes, doesn't it, Marilyn? Absolutely. Um, yeah, a couple of you are interested in him taking his sword, right? It is interesting that he takes his sword. He doesn't take his armor, he's in his mantle, right? He's just in his, in his nightgown, he's not, uh, you know, he's in his, he, he's in his bathrobe, he's not, uh, in his armor at all, but he does have his sword. Right. He's not going to go anywhere without his sword, but he doesn't bring his armor. Um, 
Carrie, I agree with you. Together is an interesting word, right? He goes back to the French book here. As the French book scythe, the Queen and Sir Lancelot were togetters. There they were, in her bedroom. There is irrefutable evidence that they were together in her room. Yeah. But yes, the pressure that he puts on togetters, Carrie, is really interesting, right? So they were togetters, but were they, you know, togetters at the time? Well, he comments on that. Whether they were abed, other at other manner of disportes, they might have been playing darts, right? They might have been playing cribbage. Who knows what they were doing, right? Um, maybe they were in bed. Maybe they weren't. Um, me list not thereof mach no mention. For love that time was not as love is nowadays. Um, here's another really interesting thing. The French book says very explicitly that they were in bed together. In every other version of the fall of Arthur, when Lancelot and Guinevere are found together and in this parallel scene, there are other details that are different. It's not like they're all exactly identical. But when finally the fall of Arthur is brought about by catching Lancelot and Guinevere, uh, you know, with this positive proof together in her bedroom, in every other version of the story, they are, in fact, explicitly in bed together. They are, in fact, caught in the act of adultery. Mallory's narrator goes way out of his way to cast doubt on that question. Cast down on that question. Whether they were a bed or at other disports, I'm not going to say. I don't feel like saying explicitly which they were. But I'll give you a hint. Love that time was not as love is nowadays. And we know what he said about love of old times, right? And the distinguishing characteristic, the thing that is different between old love and new love, you know, modern love, uh, is temperance, continence, right? The ability to resist licorice lustes. In other words, if you imagine that the queen sends a message to Lancelot saying, I need to come, I need to speak with you. Could you come by my room? And Lancelot goes in his mantle with his sword under his arm, right? That he opens the door, rips off his bathrobe and immediately jumps into bed, right? If that's what you're imagining, that means you're a modern lover. You're not thinking about it right, right? That is not how old time lovers functioned. He seems to be giving, I think, a fairly heavy hint about how we are to interpret this final scene. At the very least, he's going, as I said, way out of his way to invite us to ask the question which we otherwise might not even have considered, right? Right? 
and then he's accused. And there are 14 knights all armed. He gets out, right? Sirs, leave your noise, said Sir Launcelot, for wit you well, Sir Agravine, ye shall not present me this nicht, and therefore, and ye do by my counsel, go ye all from this chamber door, and mock you no such crying and such manner of sclounder as ye do. For I promise you be mean knichthood, and ye will depart in mac no more noise. I shall as to morn appear afore you all and before the king, and than let it be seen which of you all, other ellis ye all, that will deprave me of treason. I'll fight all of you tomorrow. Right? And there shall I answer you as a knicht should, that hither I come to the queen for no manner of mal engine. And that will I prove and make it good upon you with my hondas. Fie upon thee, traitor, said Sir Agravine and Sir Mordred, for we will have thee magra thine head and slay thee, and we list. For we let thee wist we have the choice of King Arthur to save thee, other slay thee. Ah, sirs, sighed Sir Launcelot, is there none other grass with you? Then keep yourself. And then Sir Launcelot set all open the chamber door, and mictily and knichtly he strode in among them. This is after he pulls in the one guy, put, kills him, puts on his armor, and now he's going out to fight the other thirteen. And anon at the first stroke he slew Sir Agravine, and anon after twelve of his fellows. And within a while he had lied them down cold to the earth, for there was none of the twelve knichtes mict stone Sir Launcelot on buffet. And also he wounded Sir Mordred, and therewithal he fled with all his micht, that is Mordred, not Lancelot. And then Sir Launcelot returned again unto the queen, and sighed, Madam, now wit you well, all our true love is brought to an end, for now will King Arthur ever be my foe. And therefore, Madam, hit like you, that I may have you with me, I shall save you from all manner adventurous dangers." Okay, um, again, notice the way in which Maori puts us in a, a strange place here. On the one hand, we know Lancelot's guilty. We know that he and the queen are guilty. They might not have been actually in bed together when Agravain banged on the door, but we know they did. They're not innocent. And yet, look at the situation here. Lancelot is the underdog. Lancelot is the one acting honorably. Lancelot is saying, hey, I have an idea. How about we have, I don't know, a trial or something instead of just lynching me by night? Right, coming after me when I'm unarmed and seeking to kill me in the in the queen's room, right, or in the hallway. Um, how about we not do it that way? How about we appear before the king like you know is supposed to happen as a knight should, right? And I will fight you. I'll fight any of you. No, I'll fight all of you. Thirteen on one tomorrow, right? In proper combat, in proper court. Right? I'm not going to try to hide from this. I'm not going to try. I'm not asking you to hush it up. I'm not trying to bribe you. Right? I'm not trying to flee. Let's have this out. 
And who's on the other side? Right? On the other side, we have Sir Agravain and Sir Mordred. They are the worst of the worst of the Arthurian court. Right? Sir Gawain and his brothers, except for Sir Gareth, have been the most reprehensible knights of King Arthur's court for some time now. Right? There are other bad guys about, like Sir Bruce on's pity, but but they're the worst. And Agravain and Mordred have always been the worst. Remember, it's Agravain and Mordred who murdered Sir Dinadin, too, during the quest for the Holy Grail, we're told. Their unknightly reputation and their unknightly actions here. It would have been one thing for them to show up, uh, but it's another thing for them to come armed at all points like they're going into battle. Um, so you're not even tournament garb. Right, they're dressed in full battle gear uh, to take an unarmed man. Yes, David, um, it is notable that Gawain won't have a do with these two anymore. Absolutely, notice that Gawain's choice to not take any part in this is an important and interesting step. Right, on the one hand, Sir Gawain is kind of acting better than we might have expected. Um, he's not always been shown this kind of restraint. Um, He has certainly not been above stabbing people in the back. um, And he's even had some, um, he's even had some bad blood with Lancelot in the past. Lancelot saved his life, but he's kind of grudged Lancelot on a few occasions before. Uh, And we know that Gawain is willing to kill people. He has little grudges against, um, but yeah, totally exactly. When you've lost Gawain, yeah, you're pretty bad, right? When you're making Sir Gawain look good, you are awful. We might be well aware of the fact that Lancelot is not totally in the right here. Um, but again, notice the two elements of this. There are two very conspicuous elements of this circumstance first compared to whom, right? How can you not be on Lancelot's side when it's Agravain and and Mordred on the other side, right? Secondly, once again, he is in the right. We have every reason to believe that Lancelot and Guinevere were not, in fact, in bed together. Right, and that seems to be what he was very clearly hinting when he was saying about uh, old love is not as love is nowadays. Right, um, we've got good reason to think that they were not, in fact, in bed together. So when he says, "I came here for no mal engine," right? She just said she wanted to talk, and I came to talk to her. And then you start banging on the door and, you know, saying you've caught us red-handed. Doing what? Like in the middle of our cribbage game? Come on here, right? Um, I think it's very likely that they're technically correct, right? That or that that they Lancelot and Guinevere, I mean, not Mordred and, and Agravain, right? They're in the wrong. They're like Meliagons. They're they're right, but they're wrong. Um, he didn't have to do it like this. In fact, not only did Mallory not have to do it like this, he had every justification from his sources to do it differently. 
his sources make Lancelot and Guinevere. He makes Lancelot and Guinevere much less guilty than any other version of this story. Um, and he draws attention to that fact. All right. Um, it's getting very late. I'm not going to keep you up forever. We'll come back to the great unhap uh, and uh, the, the terrible, terrible thing that happens and which seals the fate of the kingdom next time. Um, we may end up having to do an extra week, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see if we can squeeze in here. Um, I'll be back next week, so I'm headed off to the Netherlands uh, in a few hours, but I will uh, be back next week, so I will do class next Wednesday, and we'll see if we're supposed to be our final session on the text. We'll see if we can get uh, all the way to get uh, uh, get everybody safely in their graves, and then uh, uh, and then I'm going to be away next, the week after that is uh, vacation week with my family. So. Um, so, I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for joining me. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.